This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. No one compliments you when your paycheck is correct, but make one mistake and you risk alienating your entire workforce. Kronos makes sure your payroll is done right the first time from punch to paycheck. With embedded checklists and simplified workflows, Kronos is your single source of truth. With Kronos, you get HR, payroll, talent, and timekeeping in one unified system, all with a proven implementation approach and simplified, transparent pricing. Learn more at kronos.com payroll. Kronos, workforce innovation that works. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, I can't tell you how many times I might be at a lunch or at a party, and I hear perfectly ordinary people make the proclamation, my life is like a sitcom, or my life should be a reality show. Now granted, the phenomenon might just be particularly bad here in L.A., but let me give you some advice. We're all narcissists to a greater or lesser extent, but rarely is anyone's life very interesting or entertaining to anyone else. Having said that, my guest today just might be an exception. Whether she's getting walked in on in her underwear by John Kerry or nearly pooping her pants in front of the Pope, Alyssa Mastromonaco has had more than her share of adventures, gaffes, and predicaments during her time in the Obama White House. But it's Alyssa's ability to laugh at herself and talk about serious issues without taking herself too seriously that has endeared her to many people regardless of their political stripe. Having served as assistant to the president, director of scheduling in advance, and deputy chief of staff for operations to President Obama, Alyssa was once named one of Washington's most powerful, least famous people. And now she writes about her adventures, accomplishments, and lessons learned in a new book titled So Here's the Thing, Notes on Growing Up, Getting Older, and Trusting Your Gut. And today, Alyssa Mastermonico joins me on the show to talk about starting conga lines at diplomatic events and getting down on the dance floor with Michelle Obama, impersonating a hedgehog for President Obama, and why it's hard to say no when the leader of the free world tries to play matchmaker. She opens up about her battle with irritable bowel syndrome, including a few close calls at the most inconvenient moments, and the time she contracted something called beaver fever, yes, it's a real thing, during a state dinner in Tanzania. She explains why she believes all good advice is situational, how she knew when she was getting burnt out on working in the White House, and why she says you owe it to your employer to bow out if your heart isn't in it anymore. She reveals all the care and protocol that went into every foreign trip she planned for President Obama and why it was more than a little disheartening to watch President Trump bungle his way through a hastily thrown-together North Korea summit. She also says Trump's use of a personal iPhone is a major security risk, especially while traveling. She predicts what she thinks Democrats will be looking for in 2020 and why she says the candidates should stop helping Trump paint Democrats as socialists. All that and more coming up with Alyssa Mastromonaco in just a moment. Alyssa 
Vanessa Mastromonaco served as assistant to the president and director of scheduling in advance at the White House from 2009 to 2011, and as assistant to the president and deputy chief of staff for operations at the White House from 2011 to 2014. She's a contributing editor to Crooked Media and the New York Times bestselling author of Who Thought This Was a Good Idea? Now she's back with a new book titled So Here's the Thing. Notes on Growing Up, Getting Older, and Trusting Your Gut. Alyssa Mastromonaco, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, everyone always says, and it kind of annoys me when they say this, my life is a sitcom. I always hear that. With you, I feel like that might actually be true after reading this book. Uh, maybe something between Veep and Broad City, I guess. That is such a compliment, two of my favorite yeah. shows. Oh, really? Um, yes, there's a lot of truth to Veep, I'll be honest. Yeah. Uh, it is a little bit. And I I think that I wanted to highlight some of the, you know, not zany, but some of the funnier things that happen because I think people assume that to be in public service, to work in the White House, you have to be very serious. Yeah. And I am not at all very serious. Well, the title, So Here's the Thing, refers to something that's kind of become a catchphrase of yours. You talk about just becoming aware of it when you're in the Obama White House. Uh, What does that phrase convey when you say it? So Here's the Thing was I did not realize that I said it all the time until someone who worked for me pointed it out because they would gasp when they and when I would say it and they'd be like, (laughs) not the thing. (laughs) And so for me, whether on the campaign or in the White House, I probably any one of us was making 10 decisions, 20 decisions, 50 decisions a day. Mm -hmm. And when you're in charge of getting everybody to collaborate and to figure out how to explain to the world some of the president's policies, you really need people bringing their ideas. And if you're the person who's just like, no, no, that's terrible, no, people are going to stop bringing their ideas. And so what I tried to do is always find the good in an idea. Mm-hmm. So instead of, I, I, I came to use, so here's the thing, because I thought it was like a non-infantilizing way to sort of steer the conversation. Yeah. So if someone had an idea, I could say, so, okay, so here's the thing. I think this is really good over here, but what if we move a little to the right or we add this component? And you know, it was just an, a nicer way of yeah. getting everyone around a table to not feel defensive or, you know, sort of cast off. Uh, how did you first get into politics? Did you always see yourself getting into this? No. Uh, you know, it's very funny with the big college scandal, bribery scandal that's going on. Yeah, I that? laugh because I got denied from all the Ivies that I applied to. <laughs> and I, uh, I happenstance, I decided I ended up going to the University of Vermont. I went as a, a French major and a mm. minor in Japanese. I loved Burlington. I wanted to stay for the summer. I decided to do something sort of outside the box. And so I actually got an internship with then Congressman at large, independent Bernie Sanders. And that is when everything wow. changed. Wow. Was he a socialist back then? He was an independent. But okay. yes, he was socialist. I mean, he's always <laughs> okay. been a social Democrat. That's yeah. sort of the interesting thing now is that as all, uh, all of the Democrats, as they sort of run to the left. Yeah. I don't care if you like Bernie, don't like Bernie, but you do have to sort of tilt your hat at the man who has believed this stuff for 30, 40 years at this point. And so as a, you know, Vermont's a pretty small state and I was in the congressional office in Burlington and I enjoyed it so much. I used to pick Bernie up at the airport and drive him to events. (laughs) 
Uh, And, you know, back then there was no Twitter. There was no social media. So I would have to read all of the local newspapers, all the Vermont newspapers (laughs) and the New York Times so that I could, you know, converse with him when we were in the car. And he expected that of me, which I thought was cool. I was like, oh, he's not treating me like a child. I'm like very important. And so I also then enjoyed it so much. I started interning in his campaign office because it was an election year and uh, was so hooked at the end and had done such a good job that they offered me the chance to go to Washington the next summer to be an intern in the D.C. office. Yeah, it is interesting how so many of the Democratic contenders for 2020 kind of our Johnny-come-latelys to the whole socialism thing. And now yes. you have AOC and all these people. He was the original socialist. He, was, well. the, he was the original. The <laughs> I only, guess not the original. But, but no, but he was yeah. the only independent in right. the House of Representatives for a very long time. Yeah. How do you view the whole socialism thing that's becoming more pervasive throughout the Democratic Party? Because Trump seems to be testing out this strategy of painting Democrats as socialists and he has Bernie and AOC apparently willing to help him make the case. Do you see socialism being a big part of the Democratic message in 2020? And do you think that's risky? I think that so much of what they talk about are really just public services, mm-hmm. right? And so I do think that everyone in this country should have health care, that they should have safe and affordable access to health care. I think that all of the kids in this country deserve a proper education. And if you actually look, which is why I'm like so surprised that Trump is sort of beating this drum, so many of the things that these quote unquote socialists are vying for promoting are actually, if you look at like where the United States falls in the global ranking on some of these things, it's really low. Like it's an embarrassingly low. And so, you know, I just feel like we're the greatest country on earth. I mean, that's such a weird thing to say. Like we should be top five everything, you know, not not just maternal mortality. And so I think that we have to be careful to not buy into or overcorrect just because Trump's taking to something on Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think that the social programs they want are really good. And I think if you look at a race like um, in New York for the governor, Cynthia Nixon ran as a much left-leaning, nearly socialist, democratic socialist probably is a fair thing to say. And the beauty of that campaign was that she really pushed Cuomo to the left to Mm -hmm. adopt some of the prison reform, uh, thinking about legalizing marijuana, but in a responsible way. And so I think it's nothing but good. Do you think they would do well to just banish the word socialism and just talk about the policies? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's such a it's you know, it's like the it's like the boogeyman. Uh, yeah. Socialists. Yeah. Uh, people equate socialism with Stalinism. <laughs> right. It's not that. Yeah. This is just yeah. they think that people deserve a fair shake. That's mm. how I look at it. Now, I want to go all the way back to your beginning after you worked for Bernie or I think pre Kerry and pre Obama. You actually started out in Washington working for a Republican lobbying firm. What I was did. that like? I did. Well, this is one of the themes that I like to talk about in the book, which is how to define success. And you need to define it very broadly at times. And so thus, <laughs> I took that job because I needed to pay my rent. And I tried really hard and I applied, you know, back then I wrote letters, I dropped them off in the, in the House of Representatives and nobody wanted to hire me. And so there was this lobbying firm that 
basically supported the alcohol and beer industry. <laughs> and yeah, so okay, we can all get behind that. That's, you know, I was just safe and legal, though, safe, yeah. drink responsibly. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, I worked there and I used to go to trade shows like alcohol and beverage trade shows and try to recruit more members to our group. <laughs> it was super weird. But the funny thing is, is that at the end of uh, my time there, I, I had gotten a job being the press secretary for Congressman Rick Boucher, who then represented the Fighting Ninth in Virginia. And I went in to give my notice to the head of the lobbying firm. And he had actually called a meeting with me. And I was like, what serendipity? Like, this is great. I can just rip the Band-Aid off. And it turned out he brought me in to tell me I got the highest bonus in the firm. And I told him that I was leaving. And he was proud of me. He said, good for you. And I very much expected him to take the bonus back. But he said that I had earned it. And so I was like, hot damn. Yeah. Now, when did you first meet Barack Obama? So the end of – I worked on the Kerry campaign. Right. We lost. Uh is very sad. It's like everything needs to go in a proper place still, yeah. right? And so I was one of the people who was packing things up and shipping them off. And uh, it's, you know, 2005, I had my AOL Instant Messenger up, <laughs> and I got a uh, I got a message from Robert Gibbs, who people will remember uh -huh. went on to be White House press secretary. Yeah. Then he had been the press secretary for uh, Obama's Senate race, oh, okay. and he said. He's, you know, he's from down south, and I could hear it in the IM. He said, "How are you? Do you? I think you might be looking for work." And I was like, "I am looking for work." And so Robert introduced me to Barack Obama about two weeks later, and I was hired in December of '04. And you do a great job in this book of putting a human face on the Obamas, which is so hard to do when you're talking about the most powerful man in the world and his wife. Well, and um, especially since she, Mrs. Obama, since Michelle is on her book tour and it's basically the right. lemonade tour like Beyonce <laughs> went on. So filling, you know, Barclays yeah. Arena is certainly uh, certainly makes her yeah. seem other level. You say that she loves to dance, huh? Yeah. They all is love she to good? dance. They're, like, oh, she's very good. Yeah. Yes. Is he, the is, first lady's is a very good? good dancer. Um, Let's just say she's a better dancer. <laughs> and you also talk about how they love to laugh. And you recall a particular time when President Obama actually tried to play matchmaker between you and an ex of yours. Is he good at that sort of thing? What did he, he say? He is fair in his heart. His heart was in the right place. Mm -hmm. um, but I, would, I wouldn't say the execution was a 10 out of 10. Um, he just thought that, you know, we had been together for a long time and we broke up. And he, this ex of mine, had sort of decided that he maybe was still in love with me. And so they would talk about it when they traveled. <laughs> and so we were in, I think we were in Miami. And then Senator Obama, Brock says, get in the car, come with me. And so in the car, he said, this is foolish. You should just get back together. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to spent like five years trying to get over this. I can't get back in it. But uh, but he always he he played match. He tried to play matchmaker with me quite a few times, oh, which really? I always appreciated. Well, you know, he had a wonderful home life and he wanted mm -hmm. us to have wonderful home lives. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, there were quite a few times when he would like try to set me up. <laughs> Uh, how many times during that time at the White House did you make Barack Obama laugh or maybe even get an eye roll? Oh, I would get eye rolls a lot. I mean, yeah. mostly because, you know, when you're traveling so much and you're on 20 hours a day, a lot of times 
people I had been around the longest, right? Of most of the people who would travel on the road. I had I had been around since December of 04. And so if like the Secret Service would come downstairs. I mean, it's it's well known Barack Obama's not a morning person. It's not his favorite time of day because he stays up very late reading. And so when the Secret Service would come down and we'd be like, how's the mood? Um, and if they were like, uh, it could be better. So I would I would kind of turn it on. I'd be like, good morning. <laughs> and sometimes I would annoy him. But there's one sort of famous picture that Pete Souza took where we were going someplace early in the morning and the president came in and all the guys were like, Alyssa, like, put him in a good mood. And somehow uh, we talked about these new shoes that I had, which had laces. I never had shoes with laces on. And he's like, what are they for? And he said, I run around with you guys. You're all like gazelles. You're so tall. I go, I'm like a little hedgehog trying to keep up. <laughs> and so then I actually like pretended to be a hedgehog, which sent everybody <laughs> into laughter. And so there's like this series of four photos that Pete Souza took, which to this day still make me really uh, feel warm inside. I swear I wouldn't even know how to do a hedgehog impression. I'm not I sure what no I did was a hedgehog. That. I'm not even sure, but it was <laughs> okay. funny at the it was funny at 8:30 in the morning. <laughs> and as part of your job, you got to travel all over the world. How many countries did you visit when you were traveling with the president? So, I think it was over 55 mm -hmm. by the time I left. I think it was over 55. Cuz most of the trips that we took We'd hit a couple countries mm -hmm. each time, and I went on almost every single trip over the course of nearly six years. Wow. So it's reasonable. You dedicate a significant portion of the book to talking about, uh, very frankly, in fact, about your struggles with irritable bowel syndrome. Yes. IBS is hard enough on any person in a regular situation, but when you're traveling with the president, I guess it's probably pretty hard to just excuse yourself from an important meeting or when you're traveling, you know, who knows when you're going to get a bathroom break again. Yes. How did you cope? So first off, I tried to not eat that much. So okay, it would minimize <laughs> it would minimize any Smart. sort of issues. Yeah. But part of why I included it so vividly in the book and has resonated with the community of people who have IBS <laughs> is that it's such a shameful topic. Like who wants to talk about poo, right? No one <laughs> wants to talk about poo. However, for almost anyone who suffers from IBS, what exacerbates the problem is anxiety and stress. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a meeting and you're like, oh, my God, am I having an IBS attack? It's so much better to just talk to your boss about it or your coworkers so that if you do get up and excuse yourself for a minute, they're just like they keep going. It's like nothing happened. You know, it's like, oh, she'll be back, you know, so that you don't feel like you're this spectacle. You know, that's what you always feel. Yeah. You always feel you're a spectacle. And there's this um, fantastic picture that I wanted to include in the book, but I couldn't because the quality was bad. Uh, that Valerie Jarrett, who was a uh, senior advisor to the president, took of myself and Dan Pfeiffer. And we were on a boat in Senegal and it was really, really hot. And heat would also upset my stomach. And I'm leaning over like on the seat of the boat and Dan Pfeiffer is turning around. And she thought it was the cutest picture because we looked like we were dating. We never dated, but it was like a very cute picture. <laughs> and I said, VJ, she sends the picture. I was like, do you know that I was literally telling him I wasn't going to make it to the other side? And there was like no bathroom on the boat. And he's like, buddy, you've got this. You've got this. Just breathe. Just zone out. And so, you know, between he and John Favreau and Ben Rhodes, those were my travel buddies uh, yeah. and Valerie. They all had to be in the loop other, so that they could help me in case of dire emergency. <laughs> yeah. Dan is uh, what your ride or die. I think you say he's your pl he's platonic. He's my platonic uh, life partner. Yeah. 
<laughs> he is. And uh, we've been through, we're the exact same age. Uh, you know, we met the first day of the campaign and uh, Dan is such a ride or die because my very first interaction with him, uh, there was this guy who had been dating me and I, because I am Nancy Drew in my soul, I was like, you know what? I think he's using me to work for Barack Obama. Oh, and no. then I told myself I was wrong, but then I confirmed I was right through a series of uh, some research that I did. <laughs> and we're in the office. It's like our second day that I've known Dan. And I hear them talking about this guy behind me. And I was like, God is my witness if you hire him. And I'm like, I never want to see his face. He used me. And they never did. And Whoa. so, well, yeah, they never did. And so I was like, wow, I barely know him. And he just did me this huge solid. So that was the beginning of our of our platonic life partnership. There's another incident when you're traveling. And I guess Michelle Obama tried to prevent you from getting food poisoning. Yes. <laughs> Where in Tanzania? Tanzania. I wouldn't think that would be an issue at a state dinner. What no, happened there? So the best part about Michelle, um, well, one is that she took very seriously and expected us to take very seriously when we were at state dinners, we were representing the United States. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a party. We were there to talk to people. And, you know, if they were dancing, we should be dancing and which is a completely reasonable expectation. But truth be told, the bros would be on their phones a lot. And so I was the one who would get up and start like the conga line with the tourism minister. (laughs) And I would always see her watching me and she would give me the that's my girl face. (laughs) And so that was my that was usually what we were communicating during these things. And so we were in Tanzania and, uh, you know, IBS aside, I always double down at the dinners. If people serve you food, you eat the food. And so I was eating the food. It was delicious. And I saw her giving me a face and I really couldn't read the face. And I should have just gotten up and been like, why are you giving me a face? (laughs) But I didn't. And I'm like, the food is delicious. Is she telling me not to eat the food? And so it turned out that in between courses, they were giving us hand towels. Okay. And it turned out that the hand towels were not like fresh each time. They oh. were being sort of recycled. Ooh. Right? Ooh. <laughs> um, and oh, I assume that's- How did you that's... even know that? <laughs> oh, because uh, someone had alerted her oh, okay. to perhaps not use wow. the towels. Okay. And uh, so <laughs> I was like, Wow. But nothing happened because the parasite that I got takes like a week to kick in. And so about a week later, I was laid out on the floor like a chalk, like a chalk outline in at Law and Order SVU on my floor in the house. And I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And the White House doctor saw me immediately. And he's like, I'm pretty sure you have Giardia, which is called like beaver fever, because it's terrible. It's terrible. But that's why you have to write about it, because literally everyone in the West Wing was like, Alyssa's got beaver fever, which is basically it was a disease. Is that like hedgehog fever? I mean, it's like it's no, it was uh, they called it beaver fever because I think uh, beavers in upstate New York near the St. Lawrence Waterway contaminated some body of water with it so they called it beaver fever okay yeah there you go now everyone knows what giardia is we're going to take a quick break and then i'll be back with more with Alyssa mastromonaco when we come back in just a minute if there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals better help online counseling can help BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, 
LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. And it's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com kick. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com kick. And now, back to the show. You talk in the book about the pressures of traveling with the president and feeling like the world was just looking for you to screw up so they can use that against President Obama. What do you think when you look back at all the planning and care that went into all those visits versus the current president's hastily thrown together North Korea summit, Trump's shoot from the hip style diplomacy and all the gaffes that would seem to be entirely preventable <laughs> Are, are, are you like, what the hell did we even bother jumping through all those hoops for now? You know, that is something that does really uh, like upset me to my core because, mm-hmm. you know, a couple weeks ago when they had when they released those schedules, you know, they they got the the whoever it was, got their hands on the, the schedules. And of course, mm-hmm. tons of reporters called me and were like, what do you think of this? I'm like, well, I think it's terrible because that should not be leaked. I would have been very upset if that had been leaked. That's terrible. However. The schedule is the organizing principle behind what happens in the West Wing, not just the president, but all the senior staff. And so if you are if we were doing health care, I had very little to do with passing the Affordable Care Act. I have no problem saying that because I was busy doing a lot of other shit. And so what it said to me was everybody sits around and they just wait for him to tweet that the most senior responsible people not i'm not saying they are responsible but they are theoretically responsible for a lot of what should be happening are sitting around twiddling their thumbs waiting for him to tweet and see how they're going to respond and so wow. to me i just mostly i'm so upset about what's not getting done like there's so little ceremonial i mean the white house is the greatest building on the planet it is the greatest home court advantage it is the most special building you will ever walk into and to think that so many groups of of children and you know we used to do make-a-wish visits for kids who were terminally ill and the one thing they wanted to do was you know, meet Barack Obama. And that was such a special thing for us to do. We took that so seriously. And so, you know, Barack and Michelle, the president and first lady, it was the first lady's mission to make it the people's house. And that does not feel like it's happening at all right now. And then when you look to the foreign trips and what they do day-to-day visit, day-to-day business, I mean, Barack Obama, we probably traveled outside the White House to see real people, Um three, four times a month, at least. Um, He wanted to. He would get crazy if he was like, he's like, you people are not the people. I need to see the real people. Mm -hmm. And so foreign trips, you know, the one, the one... Of all the things, the North Korea summit, that's just stupid how he did it. It's stupid. I'm glad he walked away. That was good for the world and fine. You know, I'm not going to call that a failure because I think we won on that account. But, you know, like the trip that he went to uh, in France 
where he didn't go down and visit Normandy. Right. Okay, but yeah. Angela Merkel and President Macron could make it there. And there's this like image of them standing under the umbrella speaking together. And it's so powerful because if it had been four years ago, Barack Obama would have been under that umbrella with them. And just, I think, the chaos of how they deal with things, it's very simple in the White House. There is, you know, to go down there, you take a helicopter or you take a smaller airplane. For us, we knew that there would be fog issues. I'm pretty sure we took the smaller airplane uh, when we went several years ago. And the military office who who were in charge of uh, Marine One, Air Force One, Camp David, all of that, there's a weather call. And you get plenty of heads up if they think conditions are not going to be appropriate. So he had more than enough time to get in the car and drive down there. And the sort of... Yeah. ridiculousness of him sitting in a hotel room, you know, with, with right. the greatest generation who are not going to be around much longer. Right. Right. And so to me, that was yeah. just, I was like, to me, that was the, that was the execution of a team yeah. of the gang that can't shoot straight. Uh, yeah. But you compare that with, you know, these crazy stories of his insistence on going to the DMZ when he was in South Korea yeah. and how, you know, everyone was warning that the conditions weren't right to fly there. There was too much fog. Right. And he just insisted that they barrel right. through. Like, that's and not right either. Lives. My favorite, though, yeah. is when he complained uh, at that loony uh, CPAC speech that he gave about going to Iraq and how they had to turn all the lights off and, you know, $7 billion operation. It's like, that doesn't, that is not at all why the lights are off. The lights are off so people can't track you. That's why the yeah. plane goes dark, you lunatic. Like, yeah. like that's the well, stuff. He, he I mean, said he wanted simpler planes, didn't he? Oh, uh, yeah, he did. <laughs> Lord help us. You also say that it's completely crazy that Trump goes around traveling with an insecure iPhone on him. Uh, that's something that you know quite a bit about from your own experience. Talk a little bit about the kind of security procedures that you had to go through when you were traveling with the so president. So I will stipulate that I left the White House before we got iPhones. So oh, I was okay. the era of the BlackBerry. And uh, Blackberries were fairly easy to secure. Mm -hmm. um, so in most, in several countries, we would be advised to leave our personal devices on Air Force One and not even take them in country. And we would take our Blackberries because the Blackberries could be scanned. They were always okay. scanned to make sure that they had not been sort of, you know, breached in any way. And there were plenty of times when people's phones came back and they had to be wiped because they had been breached. No kidding. And so the fact that he's just walking around saying whatever he's saying on the phone and you know the bigger issue the 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 non-secure self you know iPhone is bad but also for a president most of their calls are logged right they yeah. go through the switchboard or the personal assistant to the president there's kept in a diary there's there's a readout to the people who need it whether it's you know national security or legislative affairs or you know me whoever it was and so mostly i'm just like how are people keeping track of who the hell he's talking to like who knows he's writing checks his body can't cash like on the phone with yeah. people so i that's that's even a bigger i mean like everyone's listening to him anyway he tweets his thoughts i'm not sure there's anything people can crack you know that, he, that he's not saying yeah. outright anyway but it's more just like who's he talking to and why yeah and you also get into the whole thing of accepting gifts from foreign governments 
There's a great story in here about when you were in Saudi Arabia and you got to your villa on the Saudi royal compound yes. and <laughs> they gave you some bling, apparently. We, I will say, it was the only country I recall really getting um, this sort of, you know, demonstration of mm -hmm. goodwill and kindness. But yeah, mine was a, uh, it was a, a suitcase with a ruby ring, a ruby watch, ruby necklace, ruby earrings. I tried them all on at once. You know, I was like <laughs> Carmela Soprano. I was like, wow, <laughs> look at that. But the minute that we turned, the, that we put it on, there were protocol officers who traveled with us. Mm -hmm. And uh, Valerie Jarrett and I had been emailing back and forth about like, she got emeralds. I, I think she got emeralds. I had rubies. And uh, immediately we just went and gave them to the gift officer because we were like, take these from us. We don't want to be responsible for whatever these jewels mean. You know, it's funny because I've been just reading about these gifts that foreign governments have been heaping on the Trump children, I guess that they're under no similar obligation because they don't, technically don't have a position in the government. They don't have to buy them back or, or give them wait, up. Wait, like huh? Don Jr.? Yeah. Oh, I had not read this. That oh, you is haven't? so inappropriate. Yeah, yeah, a few days ago with like thousands of dollars of gifts. No, that's completely inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're still family members. Like Sasha and Malia did not accept <laughs> gifts from foreign governments. Oh, no. or If they did, they were part of the library. You know what yeah. I mean? That's that's the... Right, right. That's, that's they go into the done. archives. Like, yeah. of course, like the kids got gifts, yeah. but they would go into the archives to someday be a part of the library yeah. and foundation. Now, when you finally decided to leave the White House, what was the biggest factor? Factor in your decision? You know, I think that one, I, in my core, I'm a patriot. I believe that the president deserves people who have 150% to give every single day. I had done it for a long time. I got to the point where, you know, when you're like sitting at a table with a bunch of people and everyone's ideating, they're like coming up with ideas. And you're the person who's like, yeah, we did that five years ago. It didn't work. <laughs> um, I was quickly becoming that person. Okay. And so I decided that one, I had had the most amazing experience. You know, it was like not that long before I left that, you know, I went to Nelson Mandela's funeral and was like separated from the president by South African police. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I mean, like I really had seen and done it all. And I, th I thought one, he deserved fresh eyes and fresh legs and someone else deserved to have that that sort of front row experience that I had mm. had. And after you left the White House, you worked at Vice and then I think at the A&E Network. Yes. Uh, what was it like going back into the private sector? Did it feel like a lot had changed? It it felt, um, I, I realize now that my I need to be mission driven. Okay. And so it's very hard to think about as any company, this isn't specific to these two, by, you know, being being driven by eyeballs, by views, by money, by advertisers. Um, I just wanted to do things that were really good. And there was some of that. But um, I, f I wanted when I left to have another act, you mm -hmm. know, to learn a new profession, to learn a new industry, which I did. Um but I don't know what I'm going to do now. I also think that my feelings about the private sector were complicated by Trump winning because if Hillary had won, I wouldn't have to worry about what's happening every day. And it's not like right. I'm the savior you know, of the enterprise, of yeah. all of democracy, but it's hard to focus on something you know, over to the right when you really think that what you work to build to be a part of for so many years is just being destroyed and dismantled day by yeah. day.
You offer some good advice for young women and men who yes. are trying to go into politics and follow in your footsteps. You actually say that you get asked a lot, how do I get to be you by the time I'm 35? But you say that they're asking the wrong question. Yes. What should they be asking? They need to really think about, so the the other sort of real North Star of this book is that I became my most successful, most successful, you know, in quotes, um, when I really was like comfortable with myself and when I felt good about sitting at those tables, when I knew that I didn't have to learn to speak another language, uh, you know, like this language of like the economists and the and these the State right, Department people. Right. I you could don't just, have to try to sound smart. No, yeah. I actually was just smart yeah. and I could just talk the way I wanted to talk. And so I wanted the people who read this book to know that you will be your most successful if you are yourself, if you are true to yourself, if you don't try to stuff yourself into a suit, if you're not a suit person. And that the reason I was, you know, when people say I want to be you by the time I'm 35, they're talking about deputy chief of staff, right? Or, or that, that sort of high ranking position in the White right. House. And the truth is, is that if I had spent my life calculating who did I think would win so that I could join that campaign, so that I could then get to the White House, I never would have gotten there. Yeah. And so I basically <laughs> pick the more ride or die, yeah. right? That, you know, when Barack Obama, when we were talking about running for president uh, at the end of 2006, he basically looked at all of us and he said, here's my philosophy. I'm going to win as myself or I'm going to lose as myself. I'm not going to try to contort myself to be what I think people want. Either they want me or they don't want me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the best way to live by it. And the American people, I think, really understood that. And that's why they voted for him, because they knew he was always telling the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, what you see is what you get. Yeah. And so I think that that if people do want to have that relationship, you just have to pick the person you really believe in. And they might make it to the White House and they may not. But you don't know where even if they don't go to the White House, where that's going to take you. Now, you also have some advice on social media in here. I know that you're active on Twitter and you're a great follow. If people are on Twitter, Thank they you. should definitely check you out. Um, you admit that it's a double-edged sword, though. Yes. Uh, do you have any personal rules of the road for dealing with social media? I try to only be shitty to Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, I just feel like he is so aggro on Twitter and so yeah. just unintelligent on Twitter that it's okay. Mm -hmm. But mostly um, it's a lesson. Like I would not, I try not to say anything on social media that I wouldn't say to someone's face. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, it's like, it's very interesting when I will tweet something and get trolled. I'm like, why do you even care then? Like, don't follow me. Like you're responding to something that's absurd. Um, and I just feel like we'd all be better off if we spent less time being upset about something that someone else said that has absolutely no bearing on our lives. What do you think about the fact that so many Americans these days are using social media as their only news source? I think it's dangerous. And yeah. one of the things that I tried, and I look, I am guilty of this sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, you can't, I realized one day that I had read the same story just by like six different reporters where basically just the first story was cited in all of those things. <laughs> and so I'm like, I just spent, you know, like an hour reading the same thing 50 times. And I really worry, and I tell people this, that 
that like to the Trump presidency is going to come to an end and we're going to have missed all of the wonderful things that have happened in science and art and yeah. theater and and you know like the great stories yeah. out there so i try to really read some magazines and some yeah. newspapers cover to cover to see the things that i would never otherwise see yeah, I worry about that. Yeah, I worry I, about I, just you know obsessing over every little thing that comes out of the White House. I mean, like White if you House. actually think back to the Obama administration, I think that we were maybe like not even on the news every day. Yeah, I could do other things. I could yeah, think you, I could go like, outside. The American I could think people about shouldn't things. have to worry. Nice. <laughs> they shouldn't have to worry every day that something bad's going to happen yeah. just because our president's a dotard. Yeah. <laughs> And I think you say that you bring up articles these days and you can actually tell when people only read the headlines. Yes. It just seems like no one has the attention span for a two-page article anymore. Well, it's just, people don't have the attention span, but then also the the media outlets want the click. And mm-hmm. so they do the sort of salacious yeah. or leading yeah. title. And look, I've done it, but... I, I've, of course, I've done it where I've, you know, responded to something based on the title. And there are sometimes I've been real wrong. Mm-hmm. And there were times when, you know, uh, I had done a, a podcast on Crooked Media and Aaron Gloria Ryan and I were talking about Bernie and we were just being attacked about like supporting Bernie. We're like, that's not at all what we were talking about. And so, you know, I try to I try to when people do that, just reply and be like, actually, that's not what I was talking about. Here's what we were saying at minute two point, you know, two oh six. Yeah. Um, I try to not be too negative about it. And I try yeah. to like practice what I preach and, yeah. and really just click on the article yeah. to see what it's about. But it's so easy to tweak the outrage machine these days. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> now, I have to ask you about 2020. Uh, among the Democrats being Yikes. mentioned, anyone pique your interest more than others? You know, I think that back in 2007, I mean, we were clocking in in the teens, I think, in Iowa and New Hampshire, yeah. uh, the Obama campaign. I am actually very interested and excited to see the first debates. Okay. Because everyone can come out. You know, Kamala had a terrific launch, like rollout event, and like that was wonderful. Um, you know, Mayor Pete is uh, in, he's so thoughtful, has such interesting things to say. But like, you know, I want to see what everybody, uh, you know, Beto just got in the race mm-hmm. today, and that'll be really interesting to see. Like, you know, how does that affect, you know, Biden getting in or not getting in? Uh, does the momentum from the Texas race bear out nationally? So yeah. I think that it's it's uh, I think that we're lucky. I think that the, all the depths of perspective are great. But I want to wait and see how the first couple yeah. of debates go. Yeah, I've heard a lot of talk of a Biden Beto ticket. I mean, I think that people who are saying that are misunderstanding the moment yeah. that we're in. Like the well, double the, white guy ticket is not exactly. Yeah. It's not. But, it's not where I would. I would gravitate. Okay. Yeah, well, it's also probably all the people who were predicting a Clinton Obama ticket. Right. <laughs> exactly. No. So, um, Bernie and Biden are getting up there in years. Do you think Democrats are looking for a fresh voice or experience in 2020? You know, I think that. I think that people it'll be interesting to see simply because Trump is president. Mm-hmm. You know, Joe Biden lived in that building for 8 years. He arguably could walk in and know what to do like the day that he was president. Um I do think that in the world that we live in there are people want to see something different. They really want to see like Washington blown up metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of the business as usual. So I don't 
I don't know. I think that if in the debates, for example, if some of the Democrats really perform in a way that people can see them as president, that that probably hurts Biden. One of the pieces of advice that you have for Democrats in 2020 is you say that you can't tweet the resistance to Donald Trump. You have to actually be active. And it does seem like that's a phenomenon that's going on right now where people are just engaging on social media as a replacement for actual action and doing the hard work. Well, action, but also it's not even action in the hard work. Like there's a reason for the free press. Mm -hmm. Like what people say has to be vetted. And so, you know, that's why I really do sort of mourn the loss of the White House press briefings, because for us, it was rigor. You know, like you you have a policy, you do all the work, you test it out yourself and you know you're going to have to defend it. And then you go in front of the reporters who are all very smart and ask you questions. And it's the gauntlet. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what I think is missing is that I, I am not the smartest person on the planet. I read the tweets and then I'm like, well, now I got to do research. Like, is this true? Is it not? And you don't get people to. And it's and it's interesting. I've always thought to watch people defend their ideas, which we were forced to do. You physically had to see Barack Obama or Robert Gibbs or Jay Carney, whoever it was, Jen Psaki, defend uh, defend what we were doing. And how people defend it matter. You can see in body language, like, are they uncomfortable? Have we touched on a nerve? And I think that that's, uh, that's really missing and that I would like to go back to a place where, at least in, in many ways, we're doing, you know, some more ed boards and, and yeah. seeing presidents and senior staff and, and other politico, like politico influencers uh, yeah. be vetted yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I worry about sounding elitist, but... God, I can't tell you how much I miss gatekeepers <laughs> more right. than anything. These exactly. Days. Before we go, one thing that you say that I really appreciate is you say nothing in American government matters unless people believe that it does. With the constant stream of corruption and incompetence and honestly just outright ridiculousness in the Trump White House, do you worry that apathy and nihilism might be setting in? I I do. I do worry that about that. I think that, you know, the government shutdown that lasted more than 30 days. Um, when we had to deal with our government shutdowns, it was so deadly serious. We knew that real people were impacted. We knew the struggles that people would face. And so, you know, in those 30 days, we see real stories of people who have to choose between their cancer medication and paying their rent. It's ridiculous. And so I do think that we are in a place where people are like, what does it even mean to me anymore? Yeah. You know, how does it even help me anymore? And the, the thing that makes me sad in my bones about that is that the reason I loved it so much when I did intern for Bernie back in 1996 was that people would call, they would have a problem, it would get sent to someone, Bernie would ask for an update, and I was like, wow, these people's problems were being solved. Now, it does not happen all the time. There is, of course, red tape. But, you know, I do think that the government should be there to serve the people who need it. And and right now, I, I don't know who yeah. is actually being served. Yeah, good question. Well, But don't real, give up. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> real quick, do you see yourself getting back in the political arena again? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, the book is called So Here's the Thing, Notes on Growing Up, Getting Older, and Trusting Your Gut. Alyssa Master Monaco, thanks so much for taking the time to drop by and talk with me Thanks about for it. having me.
Thanks again to Alyssa Master Monaco for coming on the podcast. Order her book, So Here's the Thing, notes on growing up, getting older, and trusting your gut on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And follow her on Twitter at at Alyssa Mastro 44. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat or text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Kick-Ass News listeners can even get 10% off your first month with the discount code KICK. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com kick and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Gas News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.